So the main thing, check, check, test, yep, nope. I know you can hear me, but there you go. Um, the main thing John wants his readers to know, the Holy Spirit gave him a burden for us to know, is how to have everlasting life. I hope you're not surprised to hear something like that coming to a church that believes the Bible. That's why he wrote. That's what every sentence is about. Every episode, every chapter is aiming at this one grand purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you would have life in his name. I'm reminding you of that. John wrote the sentence that I just quoted. That's why he wrote the whole gospel. We're engaging in this season of our church's life in a very slow roll, a very purposeful look at what is known as the passion narrative of John's gospel. And the reason we're going slowly is multitude, but mainly it is the point of all points. By passion narrative, we mean the events that are recorded by God in His Word concerning the detail that leads up to and during the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the passion narrative. Since last fall, we have been on one night. We have been on Thursday evening of the last week of Jesus' life since last fall. We will be on that evening and early the next morning for the next several weeks. We're walking through these events very purposefully for a reason. The Lord's been pleased to give us an abundant amount of detail None of it wasted space. He's not trying to make his book longer. None of it is space filler. Every shred of detail bears rich, rich significance for Christian faith. Today we'll give our attention to three verses, verse 12, 13, and 14 of John chapter 18. This is just after, as we heard last Sunday, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. This week, he's brought bound before a man named Annas, who's the father-in-law, we're told, of Caiaphas, who was at the time the high priest. Today's three verses, very small passage, has rich, rich food for saving faith. Your soul could take a gigantic, nutritious meal from these three verses. I invite you to believe upon Jesus as he is presented in this portion of John's gospel, that again is the goal for which John wrote these sentences. Hear the word of the living God. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 12, I'm reading from the New American Standard. The Lord says, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Join me as we ask for God's help once again. Father, help us to see what you just said in these three verses and to believe upon the Jesus who is silent tied up, being led around like a sacrificial lamb. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I realized as we take these bite-sized portions, I mentioned since last fall, we're dealing with one night of the life of Jesus. As we take these little bite-sized portions in John each Sunday, we could inadvertently be disengaged from the larger narrative. It is late on Thursday evening. Perhaps we have eclipsed the wee hours of the early morning on Friday in these three verses. It's dark outside. If you're engrossed in the storyline as John would want us to be, you would see a whole lot of things in your mind's eye when you come to these three verses. You would see commotion galore. It's the Passover. There's thousands and thousands of visitors on top of the residents of Jerusalem that are teeming all over the city and especially congregated in and around the Temple Mount. In your mind's eye, you would see not only the commotion of the Passover and all of its festivities, you would see in these three verses armor-clad Roman soldiers by the hundreds. You wouldn't be able to help but notice the very colorful, purposefully colorful tassels that are flowing from the edges of the robes of the Jewish leaders, the 200-plus temple officers, police who maintain the order of the temple, the ornately capped elderly man, most likely with a big, very obvious beard, the priest emeritus, Annas. You would see also in your mind's eye in these three verses a central, silent figure with his hands bound. Commentators give good reason for us to think that he would be tied with something like a leather strap and his hands would be behind his back. That's the Lord Jesus. Other than that, you would see John, the writer of this gospel, not naming himself, but no doubt present as these events unfold. And you would see Peter, but he would be hard to make out in the night, except for the gleam of the charcoal fire off the sides of his face. He's following at a distance. All other nine disciples are gone. Mark 14, 50, Matthew 26, 56 tell us they fled after the Garden of Gethsemane for fear. Judas is near enough, presumably. He's in the vicinity. He's fully occupied with Jesus' betrayal, and he's very eager to collect his handsome blood money payment. For today's meditation, verse 12, 13, and 14, if you can see some of that, I want you to take a look at three things in this passage with me. First, the cast of characters. I've alluded to them. Look at the cast. There are five focal points in the cast. Two groups, three individuals. Do you see them? Verse 12, there is a Roman cohort. Verse 12, there are the Jews, plural. That's the groups. The individuals are threefold. Verse 12, you see the commander. That's the commander of the Roman cohort. You see another individual, that is the Lord Jesus, in verse 12. And then in verse 13, you see Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Let's take them very quickly, one at a time. This Roman cohort, we heard some about this over the last two weeks. The Greek lexicon that I consulted says that this Roman cohort is, quote, normally 
600 men. Can you see them? They're armor-clad. These are Roman soldiers. There are hundreds of them, but their armor is not shiny, it's dusty because you're standing behind them looking over their shoulder at the face of Jesus. And the reason it's dusty is because they got knocked to the ground in the previous passage by Jesus's affirmation of his deity, the I am. That's one group. Now let's look at an individual among that group. We're told in verse 12 that the commander is there. Do you see that? Kiliarchos. I'll give you a Greek word to confuse or impress you, but to see if you can diagnose it. Kili, uh, kiliarchos. Kilo. The kiliarch would be a Roman military commander of a thousand men, just like a centurion would be a commander of a hundred. Century 100, Kilo 1000, Kiliarchos. This is a bad dude. He's told a lot of people to do a lot of stuff, and they all do it. He says jump, they say how high. He says run, they say how fast. You're supposed to see him. He feels so in charge. Number three, there's another group. This is verse 12. This is what we're referred to as the Jews. We know from the previous passage that there are lots and lots of them, no doubt dozens at least, probably hundreds. We know the temple officers from extra-biblical sources would have accumulated over 200 individuals during the time of the Passover just to try to keep order and peace around the Temple Mount. There are hundreds of these Jews. One commentator said, the Jews in chapter 18 and 19 are presented as those who cling to the minutiae of the law. That's who these people are. They're not the Roman soldiers. They're the Bible people. But while they cling to the minutiae of the law, the commentary went on to say they fail to understand how the law points to Jesus the Messiah. Therefore, they aim to execute Jesus as a lawbreaker. That's why they're there. He broke our book. That's what they're doing there. Whereas if they understood the law aright, the commentary concluded they would have become Jesus' followers. This is the group of people Jesus was talking to in John chapter 5 when he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So there's the hundreds of Roman soldiers. There's the Kiliarchos. There's the Jews. Who else is there? Verse 12, it's Jesus. The only detail we get concerning Jesus in these verses is verse 12, he is bound. His hands are tied he had just used either the left or the right to slap Mac- Malchus's ear back onto the side of his head, and now it's tied behind his back. Not only is he bound, verse 12, he is led, verse 13. That's an important detail. He is bound, he is led. New American Commentary says probably his hands were fastened behind his back. Looks a whole lot like the sacrificial lamb of Leviticus 16 on the Passover day bound and led, silent. Finally, there's this fella, Annas, verse 13. John's is the only gospel that includes the interrogation of Jesus before Annas. 
Again, it's not space filler. There's a very powerful reason why, and it lies in both the honorary position that Annas held and in the person that Annas was. Annas was previously the high priest. He wasn't now. The text tells us that that's Caiaphas's honor in this year. But Annas had previously been the high priest from AD 6 to 15, plus or minus a year. And the reason he was no longer the high priest is not because his term expired. The book of Numbers details very specifically in God's law that the high priest is a lifetime appointment. So why was he no longer the high priest? That's because the Romans had deposed him. They didn't want power concentrated in one man among the Jews. They just had to kind of keep order. So they would say, you can do it for this long. He'll do it for that long. Somebody else will do it for that long. But to pacify the Jews, they kept it within the family. So we know from extra-biblical sources that Annas's five sons were the high priest after him. His grandson was the high priest after them. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, now is the high priest. That's seven in the family. But the Jews, you know, said, Romans, you can do whatever you want to. We still see him as kind of priest emeritus. He doesn't serve a term limit. He serves according to our law. That's why they bring him to Annas. One commentator said he's the patriarch of a high priestly family, and doubtless many still considered him the real high priest, even though Caiaphas was the priest according to the Roman rule. Just a few verses later, Caiaphas is going to get involved, verse 24. That's going to be significant. We won't give our attention to it today. But John is intentional to get his readers to see an important pit stop before the face of Annas in the arrest and trial narrative of the Lord Jesus. One of the reasons is bound up not only in his honorary position, he's the pseudo-high priest, and Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, just like you find in Leviticus, but also Annas' name, literally rendered Yahweh is gracious. This is another one of John's immense ironies, like verse 14, where we're headed, There's irony all over the place. Jesus just healed a man's ear. His hands are tied behind his back. How ironic. Jesus is standing before a pseudo-high priest. He's the real high priest. They're judging him. He will one day judge them. His name means Yahweh is gracious. Jesus is literally the incarnation of the graciousness of Yahweh. That's the cast of characters. Now I want you to look at the unlawful court. This is verse 13. They led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Nothing in the law said they should have led him to a man who's not in charge officially. It is an unlawful court. There's three religious proceedings. There's three civil proceedings. The civil go Pilate, Herod, Pilate. The religious go Annas, Caiaphas, Annas. The details of this encounter are recorded, as I mentioned, only by John, and there's a number of good reasons why John takes us through the pains of seeing this portion of Jesus' passion narrative. The Jews did not have authority under the Roman entourage and jurisdiction to execute Jesus. They couldn't put him to death without themselves being held liable and put to death. They needed Rome to approve their dirty work. They needed Rome, and Pilate in particular, 
to pronounce permission for the execution of Jesus. That's why the trial soon is going to go Pilate, Herod, Pilate. Annas was not technically the high priest that year. I've already given a little background to that. And not only that, John wants us to see when Jesus is standing before this priest emeritus, this high priest in the eyes of the people that Jesus is, as I mentioned, verse 12, bound. He had done nothing wrong. Here's already a breach of their law. It's not guilty till proven innocent. He's had no trial. There have been no questions asked to Jesus, and he's already tied up like a victim. So to put two and two together, Jesus, here he is, the true sacrifice before a priestly figure. The way John opens his gospel, early, early on in John, we hear the voice of John the Baptist talking about Jesus and referring to him as, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here we are at the end of John's gospel with the Lamb of God bound like a sacrifice in front of the high priest in the temple. John is making these pains, taking these pains to make sure everyone knows that Jesus' crucifixion is the whole point of all the points that God's ever made in the world. What weekend is it? Passover. One time a year. What would happen on Passover weekend? Hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices. Blood would be spilled all over the place, but there would be one particular sacrifice that the high priest would offer. It was a lamb for the sins of himself and for all the people. And John wants you to know that it's Passover weekend. We get this detail a lot in the four Gospels. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, labor this point. But John, he didn't want you to forget. Here's the bound lamb in front of the priest on the Passover, John 18, 28. Caiaphas didn't go into the praetorium because he didn't want to be defiled and not be able to eat the Passover. How ironic. The high priest didn't want to be defiled because he wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Little did he know how blind do blind people have to be spiritually to not be able to see that the actual Passover lamb was the one who he defiled. John 18, 39. Pilate said to an enraged mob, you have a custom that I release for you someone at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? John 19, 14, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Again and again and again, John is saying it's Passover weekend. Here's the lamb bound. He's standing in front of the priest. All this to say, John's doing something very strategic, I believe, in our passage. He's putting the bound lamb of God before the high priest at the Passover. It's John's not-so-subtle way of indicating that Jesus is the true sacrifice, as John the Baptist said, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the suffering sacrifice. Now, if you want some real irony, and I've alluded to it already, Annas, who's standing here presuming to be judge over Jesus, would one day soon be judged by him. Now, I want to get really sober, and as best I can, out of like monotonous preachy talk. I don't have any reason that I can find from Scripture that would give me any indication other than this reality. 
all the hundreds of the Roman cohort and the Kiliarchos, their commander, are in hell today. Annas, based on anything I know, is suffering judgment today. All the Jews who were on the Temple Mount, Caiaphas, Annas included, are suffering God's judgment today. Hell is a real place because all those people, how ironic, ended up standing before this same Jesus by whom they were soon judged. Annas would be standing before Jesus to give account for his devilish involvement in the death of God's Lamb. John, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, is a lot like Genesis. And Genesis ends with a man, a brother, a kinsman, Joseph, exalted to the highest place. But in Genesis 45, verse 3, Joseph revealed himself to his kinsmen, his brethren, his brothers, who had betrayed and sold him into slavery and tried to have him murdered. And here we are, Jesus, soon to be exalted to the highest place, and he would, in fact, judge the Roman cohort, the commander, the Jews, Annas, Caiaphas, and everybody else in the history of humanity. So there's the crowd, there's the court, Now, I want to go to verse 14. We'll end with the ironic condemnation. This substitution. Look at at verse 14. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised to the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So close yet so far away. Look, I think doctrine matters. I just spent the hour before this service teaching a systematic theology class. Doctrine matters. God wrote a book. He intends for us to think truly, accurately about Him, about His work in the world. But good doctrine doesn't save anybody. Jesus saves. One of the most sad ways... For anybody to go to hell, for anybody to perish in their sin, is to perish theologically sound and eternally damned. Satan has really, really good theology. Demons, James tells us, believe and shudder. They tremble. What's happening in verse 14? So close, yet so far away. This is the precious doctrine of substitutionary atonement. You don't have to know those words to be saved, but you definitely got to know that doctrine to be saved. You can know it intuitively as a four-year-old child. You don't have to know those words, but you have to know that God sacrificed somebody worthy to uphold His honor and acquit you of your crimes against God, your sin against God. Somebody had to be your substitute. You got to know that Jesus made atonement as your substitute. Caiaphas is so close, yet so far away. These people wanted a useful Jesus. Expedient Christianity. Caiaphas and his whole entourage, his father-in-law included, all the Jews in the temple, they were totally utilitarian in their religion. They used Jesus as a means to an end. Of course it would be good for them that Jesus die on behalf of the people. Gather into one. I'm going to get there in a minute. All the people of God. Why? Because if Jesus dies 
and no commotion ensues in Jerusalem, and the Passover goes over without a hitch, and the Roman little parade comes into town, does their thing for the Passover, and goes back, then they get to keep their position. They get to keep their prestige. They get to keep their wallets padded. Don't you know Passover was big business for Caiaphas and Annas and the whole priestly family? All these hundreds and thousands of blood sacrifices, where'd they come from? The priesthood arranged that they be brought into the city, probably paid a premium to get all those worthy sacrifices there, then charged the people. That's why there were money changers in the temple whose tables Jesus flipped over. The priests would charge the people an exorbitant rate to get those sacrifices that were the only ones worthy. No, don't bring your own. We got one for you. It just cost you an inflated rate for you to be able to get it. Of course, it's good that Jesus died in Caiaphas' Caiaphas's theology. You want to know why? Because he's like a lot of people today. He's useful. He's a great means to an end. I get to keep my wallet padded. I get to keep my position. I get to keep my prestige. Cool with me if Jesus dies so I can get all that. The tide's definitely changing in our culture, but I can remember a day not too long ago when it was quite advantageous to follow Christ. I don't have any stones to throw about the, about the example I'm about to give. I think it's a fine thing to do. There was a whole Christian yellow pages. If you were a business owner, you could put your business and name and phone number or whatever in, in, in a book of, of Christian businesses because Christian would be, Christians would be more apt to use your services than, than a pagan. Okay, I, I, I'm not a, even principially against that. But the tide's turning, isn't it? It's no longer so advantageous to be a Christian. In fact, you may lose your job for being one. The, the tide is turning. Following Christ may actually hinder your social status or your bottom line or something. The priests in John 18... They didn't love Jesus, but they were really, really happy to use him for carnal gain. They had no idea what Paul was talking about when he said, I count everything as loss joyfully, gladly, so that I may gain Christ. So when it says here in verse 14, I want to pick up on one little phrase as we bring it to a close. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews, that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. When had he done such a thing? We're told about it in John 11. Listen carefully. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Here it comes. And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. That's what they cared about. And if Jesus could die so that they could keep their stuff, they were cool with that. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but that he might gather into one 
the children of God who are scattered abroad. Here it comes. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. He got the doctrine of substitutionary atonement right. He just didn't love and entrust his soul to Jesus. He didn't understand what he was saying about one man dying instead of the whole nation and God through that one man's death gathering all his children together. He didn't understand that. So from that day on, they planned to kill him. You know why Jesus is in front of Annas and soon to be in front of Caiaphas? Not to litigate. They're not holding any kind of honest trial. They had their conclusions before they asked their questions. And all the while, God's glorious purposes for the salvation of his people are unfolding through their sinister activity. Godless, Jesus-hating men, even ones who can say good theology, cannot thwart God's gospel purposes, rather they fulfill his saving plan. There's a difference between this lamb, Jesus, bound in front of these priests, than all the other lambs in the Bible. None of the other ones were willing. Far as I count, this is the second time in the whole Bible that a living sacrifice is seen in Scripture. And the other I alluded to a couple of weeks ago from Genesis, it's Isaac carrying his own sacrificial altar up the mountain, laying down as a teenage boy under the hands of a hundred-year-old man. There's no way Abraham could have bound Isaac if Isaac was resistant. He laid himself down on that altar and allowed his father to raise the dagger before God intervened in the last minute. And here's the Lord Jesus, the only time I can, maybe there's others I don't know about, a living sacrifice, willingly, willingly allowing himself to be a victim because he wanted to provide for you a salvation that was irreversible and a forgiveness that you could not be unforgiven from. One of the slaves of the high priest, get this, Put it together. If you see the environment that I tried to draw at the beginning, one of the slaves of the high priest, John 18, 26, was a relative of the person whose ear Peter cut off. And the slave said to Peter, did I see you in the garden with him? That means they were there. They saw Peter cut off his ear. They saw Jesus heal his ear. John doesn't mention the miraculous healing of Malchus's ear. All the other gospel writers do. What I want to draw out is these people had good theology. They also saw a miracle take place right in front of their face. But they wouldn't believe. A lot of people say foolish things like, oh man, if God does some kind of miraculous this or that, then I'll believe. No, you wouldn't. Jesus said if somebody came back from hell and told you how terrible it was, you still wouldn't believe. That's Luke 16. It doesn't matter the size of the miracle or the type of the miracle, how personal or large scope the miracle would be. Jesus said, if you don't believe the law and the prophets, you wouldn't believe if somebody came back from the dead and told you how terrible hell was. Malchus's ear was a point in case that these people couldn't believe. I mean, we're told right here in this context that somebody saw it happen. No indication that they put their faith in Christ. 
But if you would believe that these scriptures, the law and the prophets, have been testifying for 2,000 years to this one God-man in the flesh who's walking down this path of suffering in order to be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that God required to take away your sin, you wouldn't need any other miracle. This is the miracle of all miracles. See, they still want to kill him because nothing apart from divine grace can make a man see who Jesus is and what God had sent him to accomplish in his death and resurrection. You can go to church 10,000 times or you can go to church for 10 minutes. But the barrier between us and God is the God of all grace reaching his hands down from heaven, pulling the scales from your eyes and letting you see that Jesus is precisely the Savior God promised to send all these years ago. Caiaphas couldn't see it. He had good theology. The slave girl who saw her cousin's ear put back on the side of his head couldn't see it, and she saw a miracle right in front of her own face. None of the Jews who said that they were upholding the law, that's why they're doing all this, they couldn't see it. The other gospel writers speak of Jesus' power in this moment. They tell us that he could have called 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels to come to his rescue. Here's what we find out in verses 12 to 14 in the surrounding context. Jesus is allowing all of this to take place. Theologians call it the passive obedience of Jesus, passively allowing the enraged mobs and the unjust unjust courts to jockey him around and lead him to his death. He knows what's happening, and he's motivated, motivated by love to God and love for you. That's why he's allowing this to happen. And John does something that the other gospel writers don't do in the way he presents it. We'll see it starting next week. He intertwines Peter's denials with Jesus' trials. John wants you to know they're happening at the same time. Why does he want you to know that? Because it actually shows us what Annas' name ironically means. Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. His grace is available for all who come to Jesus by faith. Believing in the death of Jesus to forgive your sins and his resurrection to unite you to God forever, you will know for sure and forever that God is gracious. But if you will not have Jesus as your sin substitute, just like the people in this passage, then you'll suffer the same fate that I presume the whole Roman cohort has been suffering for the last 2,000 years. That the Kiliarchos, that thousand-man leader who thought he was so in charge, is suffering even this day. Caiaphas, Annas, all the Jews who were parading around the Temple Mount on this Passover, if you won't have Jesus, you'll suffer the same fate that they suffer. Next week, we see Peter's first denial. And I believe John puts it interwoven into Jesus' trial because he wants you to know, but if you will have him, It doesn't matter how far you run, doesn't matter how egregious your sin is, doesn't matter how recently you experienced some fresh work of God's grace only to open your mouth and deny him boldly in front of everybody in vicinity. If you'll be like Peter, 
You'll be broken over your sin and not hang on to that for which Jesus died. And you'll come to him and ask for grace and forgiveness. There's more grace in him than there is sin in you. I leave you with this. John's gospel shows us more of the deity of Jesus Christ than any other book in the Bible. I mean, I debated on saying that because I've read Colossians, I've read Hebrews, I've read Revelation, but it's tied for first. The deity of Jesus, he is God. It's all over John's gospel. And here he is, totally silent, his hands behind his back, because he wants to bring you to God forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that